So they go in firing and they, you know, in about a 10 or 15 minute period, they shoot a lot of people, which turn out to be civilians. And then they finally get into the village. And it's very clear at that point that there are no VC in this village, or at least if there are, they're hiding. And again, that's another point at which that should have been it. We're done now. And in a way it was Medina, who was the head of a sea company that had assaulted me for, he issues a report and this is where the cover-up starts, that says he's already killed 20-some VC. He knew they weren't VC. I mean, we have it in the record. He radios back these reports. He got contact made. We killed 20 VC. I got the bodies, you know, so on and so forth, and, and we're going to proceed through the village. So he's already lying. And Barker already knows there's something just not right about it. I mean, it, it clearly isn't what they expected. So at this point, Medina and Barker and a couple of other people start to collude essentially, to hide what's going on. Um, and we're only 10 minutes into the operation. At that point, Medina says, okay, hold your fire. Let's gather the civilians up into groups and get them out of the village so we can move through the village because we have another objective past the village. And so that's what he orders Callie to do. Get them into groups, get them out of the village, we'll search the village, and then we'll move on to our next objective, which is to the north. And Callie does this. And then something really inexplicable happens. Callie orders his men to kill the civilians in these groups. In November 1969, news broke of a massacre of Vietnamese civilians by US troops in the village of My Lai in the So Ton district of Quang Nai in the South Central Coast region of Vietnam. The killings themselves had taken place more than a year earlier on the 16th of March 1968. It's difficult to know how many deaths there were. The US Army puts the figure at between 150 and 347, and there are estimates of around 500. By March 1968, the war in Vietnam had not been going well for the US. Numbers of killed by the end of that year reached nearly 37,000. The total US killed in Vietnam would reach more than 58,000, Including civilians, South Vietnam would see 1.2 million dead and North Vietnam would lose around 1.5 million. And so these numbers are mind-boggling. The US and South Vietnamese forces faced two enemies. First was the North Vietnamese Army, or the People's Army of North Vietnam, which was a more conventional force based predominantly in the north, but also in Laos along the supply lines of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And the other was the Viet Cong, or the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, which was a guerrilla force based beyond the demilitarized zone in South Vietnam. Americans had seen increasing involvement in Vietnam throughout the mid-60s, and the numbers of troops increased considerably, so that by 1969, more than half a million were in the country, under the command of General William Westmoreland. But the message being given to the American people was that victory was right around a corner. Just prior to the massacre in January 68, the Tet Offensive took place, which was a massive attack by North Vietnamese forces, and in the south, Viet Cong forces managed to breach the US Embassy grounds in Saigon. That attack, whilst unsuccessful, showed the American public that perhaps the war wasn't going well. So there's the background. My guest today is Marshall Poe, who has written The Reality of the Melee Massacre, which is unique in that it examines the events of that day to try to understand exactly what happened. Marshall is a historian and author of books on Russian history and is the founder of the New Books Network, a podcast that covers many different subjects, including history. So links are in the show notes for you to find out more. 
Coming up, I've got Winston Churchill, the history of conspiracies, a debate on SAS origins between two historians who don't see eye to eye, the Gothic Wars, and much, much more. Please do share with like-minded and rate and review if you can. But until then, I'm going to hand you over to me talking with Marshall Poe on the Melee Massacre. Marshall Poe, welcome. It's absolutely fantastic to have you on. We're here to talk about the re- your new book, The Reality of the Melee Massacre and the Myth of the Vietnam War. And so thank you for joining me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And so this is a subject actually for the listeners. I've not really delved into the Vietnam War at all. We've spoken a little bit about JFK and the Cuban Missile Crisis, which um, happens around about the time of the beginning of the U.S. involvement in the war. But the Miley Massacre, which occurs in March of 68... Mm-hmm. is what we're here to talk about today and and this is a this is a, an atrocity that occurred well into US involvement in Vietnam and so i wanted to start by just asking if you could provide a little bit of context for our listeners just so they know what's happening uh, during the Vietnam war when this massacre occurs and then we'll deal what happened and why Okay, so it's probably best to begin in 1965 after the Tonkin Gulf incident. And this was the point at which the Johnson administration, which had already been involved in the Vietnam conflict, as had the Kennedy administration, decided to send a lot of U.S. troops there very quickly. Uh, They were uh, quite worried that South Vietnam would fall. They did not want South Vietnam to fall for various reasons, uh, some of them having to do with geopolitics in China and Russia but also because they were interested in preserving what they thought was a democracy in um, South Vietnam. Now, this is an aspect of the Cold War, full stop. This is what they were fighting, the Cold War. So in 1965, they begin to send a lot of troops. And uh, what they quickly discover is that um, the fighting in South Vietnam is really not straightforward at all. Uh, It is what we would call today a kind of war of counterinsurgency. At the time, they called it a guerrilla war or a dirty war. There are essentially no big unit battles. There are some, but not very many. The uh, North Vietnamese had infiltrated South Vietnam. They were really all over the place. They had uh, set up a kind of shadow government in many parts of South Vietnam in the area where My Lai occurred, which is Quang Nai province in the north of South Vietnam on the coast. The the Viet Cong essentially ruled the area. Uh, they had very significant sympathy among the local population. And uh, the way the United States fought the war at the time was essentially like this, and it's still the way we fight wars of counterinsurgency. They set up kind of safe spaces, we would call them, their fire bases. Uh, these are places with they're heavily fortified with a lot of artillery. And then they would sally forth out of these fire bases uh, in order to find the Viet Cong if they could, which was often a problem, uh, and defeat the Viet Cong. Uh, this is combined um, uh, essentially with an effort to convince the local population that the Americans, in this case, on these South Vietnamese forces, and there were Korean forces there as well, there were also Australian forces, there were Canadian forces, that they were really there to help the South Vietnamese. That This proved very difficult because... As you can understand, when somebody invades your country, 
you think, why are these people here? Who are they? What are they doing? They say they're here to help us, but they keep, you know, they killed my uncle and they keep blowing things up. So this was a very tough sell, but that's essentially the way that they, they, they fought the war from these fire bases. And so let's move forward to 1968. This is after the Tet Offensive. The Tet Offensive came as a great surprise to the United States. Westmoreland and his uh, uh, buddies had um, told the people of the United States that, that the war was going very well. Uh, in early 1968, the um, North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong launched uh, an offensive all over South Vietnam, including most famously the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. They attacked it, and this uh, shocked the hell out of uh, the, the U.S. forces. Now, uh, it, actually, the Tet Offensive went very badly for the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. Um, they came out into the open, and this is precisely what you do not want to do in a guerrilla war. Uh, they fought the Americans in what were kind of big stand-up battles, they lost. So in an, in an oddly ironic sense, the, the Tet Offensive was a great victory for the North Vietnamese in terms of turning public opinion against the war, because they felt they'd been lied to do by the chiefs of staffs and the president. But militarily, it was kind of a disaster for the North Vietnamese. And actually, there's some good books about this, because the North Vietnamese were really set on the back foot by how effective the Americans and the Koreans and the South Vietnamese were. And they so, lost about, in the Tet Offensive, the North Vietnamese lost about, was it about 45,000? I don't know that. I don't know the figure, and these figures are notoriously unreliable. They they really, it's very difficult to say, because uh, at this point, uh, it's almost all propaganda. But but we... we uh, that that was the prime motivation for the American uh, forces, was to count the numbers of people they'd killed. Yeah, and, you know, just to digress a little bit on body count, you know, it, it people criticize it a lot, but, you know, one wonders how are you going to measure success in a war like this other than body count? You can't really measure it by the territory you control because nominally you control all of it, right? There was no place the American forces could not go. Uh, now, of course, they would suffer various predations if they went there, but they could go anywhere. So they already have all the territory. So how are you going to measure success? Well, how many of the enemy you kill seems like a pretty legitimate way to do it, uh, even though it's come under a lot of criticism. Um, I don't know if the military still does it this way or not. But yeah, so the North Vietnamese and the and the Viet Cong got drubbed after the um, Tet Offensive. And there was a renewed effort on the part of the Americans to try to bring the conflict to some sort of close. And th this really brings us right to the the cusp of the of of what happened at Milai. So Milai occurs within a, a a few weeks of of the of the offensive. There had been atrocities that had been that had taken place before Milai, um, on by both sides, in fact, and so. I know we're going to get into the whys and the wherefores um, in a moment, but um, Milai really is a, an outlier, certainly for U.S. troops, isn't it? Yeah, and this is one of the things that I argue in the book that some people may or may not disagree with. Of course, it depends on what you mean by an atrocity. If you are a pacifist, all war is an atrocity. So the idea of war crime is a kind of nonsense <laughs> because all war is a crime. Uh, yes, there have been atrocities where civilians were killed um, on both sides. 
But again, this is what I argue in the book. There's nothing like Milai that we find in the records. That is simply in terms of the number of civilians who were killed and the way in which they were killed. They were killed by shooting. Now, you might argue reasonably that bombing um, North Vietnam, something my uncle did, actually. This is part of the reason I wrote the book. He uh, um, piloted a fighter bomber during the Vietnam War. And he bombed North Vietnam and he probably killed civilians. I mean, he may have killed hundreds of them. I don't know. And you might say, well, that's an atrocity. Well, okay, fair enough. But it wasn't done intentionally. Um, in this case, uh, it, it's somewhat different because it was really face-to-face -face killing. They, they gathered, we'll talk about this in a second, but they gathered a couple of groups of Vietnamese civilians together and they shot them. And the number of people killed is also really unknown. You see the figure 500 a lot. I don't know if that's true. It may be. Uh, the United States military says 128 were killed. Uh, I don't that, know. That's if the that's official. True. Is that an that's official? The, yes, that's the final report. They said 128 um, Vietnamese were killed. So we really don't know, but we don't see any atrocities on that scale of a face-to-face -face nature where U.S. troops in the field were shooting civilians. So in that sense, it's unique. So why were U.S. troops there? Was was there a, a military objective that needed to be taken or was it? Yeah, well, the, 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 the military reason was essentially uh, to hold the line in this area of South Vietnam. It was um, it had always been a hotly contested area. It's pretty close to the north. The north always had people there. Um, you know, one of the things about the Vietnam War is that even though the United States at one point had 500,000 troops in the field, well, not in the field, but they had 500,000 military personnel there, they never had enough people to actually do the job they were assigned to do. And the unit which that, that, that did the massacre was a unit that was simply kind of created out of whole cloth. It was called Task Force Barker to hold the line in this coastal area of uh, South Vietnam while other things were going on near the DMC. And the DMC was a very hotly contested area at this at this time. So essentially it was kind of a holding action. They didn't they didn't want the North and the Viet Cong to make any more headroads than they had made. Now, of course, their uh, their ostensible option and the option of the United States military even to this day is to find, close with, and kill the enemy. And so that's what they were supposed to do. They were in a couple of fire bases. And I should also say, this is not an area of Vietnam that is jungle. It's a coastal area. It's pretty open. Um, and it's very near the sea. And in fact, during the My Lai Massacre, there were, there were bombardments from the sea. Uh, so their uh, American Navy was, you know, was kind of right off the shore. So it, it, it wasn't an area of um, emphasis for the United States Army. Uh, but it was an area that they felt that they had to devote a certain amount of attention to just to hold the line. And so you mentioned the the unit name there, Task Force Baker. What was the size and, and who were? That doesn't yeah. sound like a conventional name. For no, it. it's not. It's not actually. And uh, what, what happened was, is that um, some Korean units that were in the area were uh, ordered north. They had been holding this area in this particular area of operation and uh, Samuel Coster, who's the head of the Americal Division, ordered a guy named Andy Lipscomb, who is the head of the 11th Brigade, to create some sort of unit that could hold the line in this area. 
uh, Santin district, or we just call it the Mulai district, or Pinkville is what they called it, because that's what it was called on, on, on U.S. maps. And so he puts together this ad hoc unit called Task Force Barker, named after the leader of the unit, uh, who was Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker. And Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker becomes very important, and I think this has been missed in previous understandings of Milai, some of which are very good, by the way. I want to make clear that mine is not a revisionist history. I, I build on what other people found. I really offer a kind of higher resolution understanding of, of what went on. But in my story, unlike previous stories, Colonel Frank Barker is really the person most responsible for the massacre. He's the person that kind of set it in motion uh, you know, you hear a lot about Ernest Medina and William Calley. Most people know who William Calley is because he was prosecuted. The, these uh, are, in my telling, they're not minor players, but they're not as important as Barker. So Barker was put in, in, in charge of this unit called Task Force Barker. It's it's a battalion-sized task force, meaning it has three companies and about 500 men. And all of these men are located on these fire bases where they can be safe because you can't stay out in the countryside. You're not safe. And what they would do is they would leave these fire bases on patrols, some of which lasted days, in order to look for the VC. And so his mission was essentially to find what they thought was a particular VC unit, the 48th VC Battalion. This is the kind of bete noir of, of Task Force Barker. His, his hope was to find the... 48th VC Battalion and destroy it. So the 48th VC Battalion is going to be using villages for food, and and so there will be certain amount of involvement in in the area, won't there? I mean, they yeah. I mean, the the basic difficulty that many American commanders in Vietnam and Barker included was he didn't know where they were. Uh, it was very easy for them to hide. They could dissolve among the populace. They could go to the west into the highlands where the American presence was weaker. And so, you know, one of his difficulties in accomplishing his mission was simply to find them. Now, this brings us to kind of the run-up to the Milai massacre. Um, Barker thought he knew where they were on two separate occasions, February 13th and February 23rd, 1968. And he thought they were in the Pinkville or Milai area. And so twice before, he had mounted uh, battalion-sized operations, hundreds of men, to attack the area around Milai. And if you read the reports, which I did, and anybody can, they look like great successes. Um, he reports killing 155 VC for only six KIAs. Now, his peers and uh, his superiors would have looked at this with some suspicion because that ratio doesn't make sense. And the American forces were in many ways better than the Viet Cong and North Vietnamese, but were they that much better? It's a very odd kill ratio. I think Westmoreland gave a, a, a ratio of 10 to one, didn't he? He may have, I don't know, but I can tell you this, and this is something that's kind of missed in much of the popular imagination or, I guess, popular understanding of the Vietnam War. The United States military was very concerned with, with civilian casualties. There, I, I read, and you can read, many, many memos and many investigations of very strange, you know, what looked like the inflation of, of, of body counts. 
and it's easy to understand why they would be concerned with this. I mean, first of all, it was against the regs, right? I mean, most militaries have regulations against killing civilians. And it's, you know, it's bad for all kinds of reasons. But it was also bad for business in the sense that, uh, you know, there were lots of reporters in the field who didn't like the Vietnam War who were looking for atrocities. And they would report them in the New Yorker in places like this, in the New York Times. So if they could be avoided, well, that was just much better um, for everybody. And so the, the the brass was pretty much all over people like Barker to avoid civilian casualties, if at all possible. And I don't have any evidence that they didn't do that. They did try to avoid civilian casualties. But in this context where you can't really tell very easily combatants from civilians, it's difficult. And this, these particular two operations, the February 13th and February 23rd ones, you know, one wonders, how do you kill 155 VC, only suffer six casualties? And then the kicker is, in his report, he said they found only six weapons. Right. And so you might ask yourself, okay, if there were 155, at least 155 VC in the area, and you killed 155 of them, you only collected six weapons? Where are the weapons? And the brass asked this question all the time when they got these reports. They were like, okay, this doesn't make sense. What are you doing? Well, it's pretty clear what they were doing, I think. They were inflating the body count to make themselves look better because, you know, the other thing to understand is for people like Barker, they were always trying to make rank. They, you know, Barker really wanted a real battalion, not Task Force Barker. He wanted a real battalion. And the best way to make rank is to do really well on the field. And so what they would do is they would essentially pad these reports. Now, the brass knew they were doing this. There's no question about it because the brass was all over them about it. But the six weapon things look really strange. And you can find this in the documents. And I should talk a little bit about the how, why we know all this. Because after the Milan massacre in 1970, after it came out, the army conducted the largest investigation of any military operation in history. It was called um, the Peers Commission. And they interviewed everybody involved. And that produced 18,000 pages of transcript interviews. They collected 5,000 official documents. So we have, we know everything about this particular small unit action, battalion sized action. And we, and we know that uh, Barker was questioned about it and people talked. You know, they wondered. And the obvious thing that people wondered was who were those? If, first of all, did he kill 155 VC? Well, maybe, maybe not. If he did kill 155 people, who were they? So there may have been two previous atrocities. We just well, well there may have been. Um, I, I argue in the book that there weren't two previous atrocities, and the reason is this: uh, had there been, the North Vietnamese would have used it in propaganda, which they did after My Lai in a big way. So I don't, I don't think that there were atrocities. Probably civilians were killed, but I don't think 155 were killed in these two previous incidents. Again, I could be wrong. I mean, it's always important to say I could be totally wrong about this, and there could have been two previous atrocities. I don't think there were. But people were asking questions about this. Like, what is Barker up to? What is he doing? The 155 doesn't make the six the, the six weapons doesn't make sense. You know, what, what what is going on? And you have to put, you know, think about it in in, in in you have to put yourself in Barker's shoes. This worried him. You know, he, he wanted to make rank. He wanted to get a real battalion. He he wanted to impress his superiors. And so what does he do? Well, he decides to go again into the same area. And this is how we get to the Milai Massacre, which happens on March 16th, um, a little, you know, uh, uh, three weeks after the, the February 23rd 
incursion. So 16th of March, we yeah. should make clear to listeners, the actual massacre, that uh, it didn't come out till much later to the American Yeah, party. that's right. There was a, there was a cover-up. And, and this is another thing that I, I don't deal with the cover-up in the book, except to say that it started a lot earlier than people think, because it actually started on the day. And we can talk a little bit about that. I mean, yeah, and remind me to talk about that, because it started literally 10 minutes after the initial assault. Yeah, there was a cover-up, but it wasn't a cover-up by the U.S. Army. It was a cover-up by four or five bad actors and probably a dozen really inattentive uh, uh, senior officers who just weren't looking very carefully. Uh, but yeah, it was over a year before it, it finally came out. Well, let's go um, into the massacre itself. Right. So you kind of have to start on March 15th or a little bit before. So Barker is looking for the 48th VC. He doesn't know where they are. And so suddenly one of his, uh, well, his intelligence officer, a guy named Katush, comes to him and says, I know exactly where they are. They're in what, a, a village called Milai 4. There are several Milais. They all have numbers on army maps. They're in Milai 4. And they're in uh, very fortified positions, and all of them are there, and I'm just sure of this. Later army investigators tried to find out where that intelligence came from, and they could not. Uh, they... They looked at other intelligence shops. They uh, questioned Katush himself. They questioned all the people, like, where did you get this information? Because it proved to be completely incorrect, like 100% wrong. And nobody could find out where it came from. Like, you know, I don't want to say it was made up, but like, no, nobody could trace the thread that, that led from whatever intelligence to Katush to Barker. Nobody could figure this out. It is rather suspicious because he's telling his boss what he wants to hear, right? Katusha is saying to Barker, oh, I know exactly where they are. They're right here. And then he says something that's even more remarkable and really absurd. He says that on the morning of March 16th, there'll be no civilians in the village. None. And the reason he gives for this is that they will all be at market. That's true. But people do go to market. They have to buy stuff. It's totally true. But I, I feel comfortable in saying that both Barker and Katush knew this was absurd. And later army investigators, when they were talking to Katush, Barker was dead, by the way. He died about a year after. He was killed in a helicopter uh, crash about a year after, so he couldn't be questioned. So they asked Katush and other people like, okay, where did you get this crazy idea? You know, and many of these investigators had served in Vietnam in exactly the same positions that, uh, you know, Lipscomb and Barker and Medina, and Kat, they, they, they had been there. And they knew this was crazy, that there's no way all the civilians leave any village for market on any particular day. It just can't happen. And of course, Katu says, well, you know, I, this is based on my experience and things like this. Well, it, 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 his experience told him this was false. So here you have what are essentially two bits of very bad intelligence. One, that the 48th VC is all in Milai 4, and two, that all the uh, uh, civilians are are gone. Now I have to digress a little bit. Pardon me though. After the February 13th and February 23rd operations, Barker became very concerned about civilian casualties. Suddenly, and everybody reports this, like suddenly he's really worried about it. And he even goes to the Vietnamese and says, could you please remove all the civilians from the My Lai Pinkville area? And you can see why he would do this, right? He wants a free hand. He doesn't want to have to worry about what we would call collateral damage. He doesn't want his soldiers coming into contact with 
Vietnamese civilians. Why doesn't he want that? Well, you have to digress a little bit further. In this area, I can't speak about Vietnam generally or South Vietnam generally. In this area, the soldiers themselves call almost all the civilians VC sympathizers. They don't call them civilians. And when later questioned about why they shot them, they said, because the you know, the interrogator would say, well, why did you shoot these civilians? And they would say, well, they weren't civilians. They were VC sympathizers. They all said this. I mean, and, and true, maybe they were covering their asses. I don't know. But my, my, my impression is that they were speaking genuinely, that they were really worried about these people, that these people were, in fact, in league with the Viet Cong. And they may have been. This is not incorrect, because when these soldiers went into these kind of rural areas outside their fire bases, what they found was mines and booby traps and sniper fire all the time, every time they went out. And so what do you, who's doing the shooting? Who's putting the mines? Who's laying the booby traps? Well, I, who's in the area? What's these people? And so they, they had the, they, they invent this concept, really VC sympathizer. Um, and so Barker, in the run-up to the March 16th operation, he's very worried about this. <laughs> like, and who knows, maybe on February 13th and February 23rd, he, his guys had shot a bunch of quote-unquote VC sympathizers. He doesn't want that to happen again. He's tired of the stock. So he asked the South Vietnamese to remove all the civilians. And of course, the South Vietnamese said, well, that's just impossible. Part of the reason they couldn't do it is because they weren't really in the area because the VC controlled it. I mean, it's another thing people, you know, it shocked me when I learned it, like, South Vietnamese officials would not go into this area because they knew that the VC was in control of it. They had a shadow government there. It was, it was, you know, the Americans called it Indian country. For the South Vietnamese officials, that is people who were in league with Saigon, this was just no-go area. You know, you you were a bad thing was going to happen to you if you went into that area. And so the South Vietnamese tell Barker, well, I, we, we can't do that. We can't even go there. But uh, Barker decides to proceed anyway on the basis of these two bits of completely fallacious intelligence, one of which was that the 48th VC Battalion was in a fortress in Milai 4 and that there would be no civilians there. And that's what he tells his commanders. There's briefings on March 15th where he says to his um, captains, that is the people in charge of the uh, companies, look, we're attacking a VC fortress. There are going to be no civilians there. You essentially should kill everybody you see and destroy everything you find, just like you would be attacking a, a military installation, because that's what this is. Why he said this, I don't know. Whether he believed it, I don't know. Everything he did suggests he did believe it. Um, for example, uh, he ordered an artillery strike on the village itself. This is something the United States Army tried to avoid at all costs. And goes back to something that they don't want civilian casualties. You do not bombard a village. Well, you, you have to go way up the chain of command to get uh, an allowance to do that. Barker did not go way up the chain of command to get that, but he he actually shelled the village. So it suggested he actually did believe this. Did he have artillery himself, or did he call? Well, he had attached up? artillery. Yeah, he had attached artillery from the fire bases they flew out of. There were two fire bases they flew out of, and he had attached artillery, so he could order a strike. So th this brings us, you know, and it's again it's important to understand exactly what the um, what the captains in charge of the companies, 
what the platoon leaders themselves were told. They were told that this was a VC fortress and there would be no Vietnamese in it. So they should go and kill everybody they saw and destroy everything. And this primed them. You know, they had been waiting for a big stand-up fight for a long time. Fighting in Vietnam was frustrating, right? Snipers and mines and booby traps and no contact with the enemy. Here was an instance in which it was clear there were them and there's us, and we have a free hand to go in and kill them and put an end to this. And I, I think this is the way that they thought of it. Now, of course, they were scared, obviously, because this was the first time they were going to be involved in a kind of unit-on-unit -unit engagement as opposed to you know, ordinary counterinsurgency or guerrilla warfare. So on the morning of March 16th at 8 a.m., they landed outside My Lai 4. And we're going to concentrate. There were, uh, the operation is a little bit more complicated than that. There were a couple of other villages involved, but let's just concentrate on Milai 4. So the company involved there is under the command of Ernest Medina. He was a seasoned officer, also a career officer. He knew what he was doing. He had been highly decorated. And all of these people were like that. I mean, they, they were all seasoned officers. They weren't newbies by any uh, standard. They, Go ahead. And they were, it wasn't a group that was lacking in morale having been no. in, in vietnam for many years yeah, well they have a year-long tours don't they but it's... yeah no i mean but uh barker had been in vietnam for years and, and the thing about it is, is for career officers they wanted to get back to vietnam because that's where you made your career this is something that's always forgotten you do not make your career sitting at a desk in fort leavenworth you make your career fighting in the field in vietnam so for people like Barker and Medina, this is where they wanted to be, right? Because that's where you show yourself to your superiors, and that's how you get a good fitness report, and that's how you get promoted. And that's what they wanted. So on the morning of March 16th, they land outside Milai 4. Everybody seems to be saying that it's a VC fortress, that there should be several hundred VC in it, in uh, fortified positions. The place is shelled. They get there, and there's nothing. Now, you would expect a kind of fusillade, right, uh, out of the village. And they didn't land very far away. It was like 100 meters. And in terms of weapons, like the, if it was actually a battalion, they would have had 51 caliber, you know, the equivalent of an American Browning 50 caliber machine gun. And that would have been able to tear up the, the helicopter. But they did nothing. There's no firing from the village. There, there was a there were helicopter gunships that did see VC in the area. This is another kind of myth of Milai. There were actually VC in the area. There's no question about it. The, the helicopter gunships saw them, took them under fire, and they were found. And they were armed, and they captured their weapons. But the 48th VC was not there. Or at least it didn't look like they were there. And so this was very confusing for both Barker and Medina and then later Cali. Like, they get there. They're in position outside the village, waiting for instructions, and there's no fire coming from the village. There's a lot of fire because helicopter gunships are involved. They also were, there was artillery coming in. There was no fire from the village. Now, you know, I, I suppose if you want to, you know, Monday morning quarterback it, that should have been it. It should have ended right there, right? It, it, you know, Barker should have said, okay, we were wrong. He told Medina, we're done. We're going to move around this village and we're going to go to our next objective. And this wouldn't have been an unusual thing to do because intelligence is wrong a lot. 
But that's not what Barker did. Barker said, go ahead with the assault as if it was a VC fortress. So they go in firing. And here I have to digress a little bit more. I'm sorry for all these digressions. You know, one of the things that the troops in in Vietnam in this area learned to do was called reconnaissance by fire. The, the purpose of reconnaissance by fire is to fire blindly into areas where you think the enemy is in hopes that they will return fire and thereby reveal their position. Lots of militaries do this. It's, it's very common. I mean, you need to find the bad guys. How are you going to do it? Well, shoot at them and they'll probably shoot back. And the troops go on and on about how great reconnaissance by fire is because the Vietnamese generally shoot back. And that's bad fire control, but in any event. So they, they basically went into the village shooting. And who did they see? Well, they saw a lot of people. Who they were, they didn't know. Barker and Medina were hoping that the 48th VC was actually in the village exercising incredible fire control. They were not firing. This was still possible. Like they were they're sort of really good. The man. Of the eyes. Yeah, exactly. They're really good. They're that good. So they go in firing and they, you know, in about a 10 or 15 minute period, they shoot a lot of people, which turn out to be civilians. Uh, and then they finally get into the village. And it's very clear at that point that there are no VC in this village, or at least if there are, they're hiding. And again, that's another point at which, you know, again, Monday morning quarterback, that should have been it. We're done now. And in a way it was. Now, Medina, who was the head of a C company that had assaulted me live for, he uh, issues a report, and this is where the cover-up starts, that says he's already killed 20-some VC. He knew they weren't VC. I mean, we have it in the record. He radios back these reports. He got contact made. We killed 20 VC. I got the bodies, you know, so on and so forth, and, and we're going to proceed through the village. So he's already lying. And Barker already knows there's something just not right about it. I mean, it, it clearly isn't what they expected. So at this point, Medina and Barker and a couple of other people start to collude, essentially to hide what's going on. Um, and we're only 10 minutes into the operation. It's like, you know, it's like 8.15. At that point, Medina says, okay, hold your fire. Let's gather the, the civilians up into groups and get them out of the village so we can move through the village because we have another objective past the village. And so that's what he orders Callie to do. Get them into groups, get them out of the village, we'll search the village, and then we'll move on to our next objective, which is to the north. And um, Callie does this. And then something really inexplicable happens. Um, well, let me let me actually go back a little bit. When they made the initial assault, and we had this from the testimony of soldiers involved, some of the soldiers involved said they knew they weren't VC. They didn't fire. At least that's what they say. They said, I did not fire because I knew these weren't bad guys. Right? Others did. And, you know, fire is kind of contagion. You know, the best way to know that you should be firing is if the guy next to you is firing. And so uh, all of a sudden, everybody's firing. And you're like, well, I should be firing. Some of them didn't, though. Or at least they claim they didn't. So. Barker tells Medina to round these groups up. And we know he rounded up at least two groups of people. And as I say, then something inexplicable happened uh, a few minutes later. Callie orders his men to kill the civilians in these groups. Now, why did he do this? 
Well, we don't know exactly. What um, Callie says is that Medina was telling him to get through the village as quickly as possible because they have another objective. And clearly the VC aren't here and we have to get to our next objective. So we need to get through this village. And Medina tells Callie to take care of, I think he uses those words exactly, take care of these, what he would have thought were VC sympathizers. And Callie orders his men to kill them in, in at least two groups. Uh, and this is also interesting because some of the soldiers agree to do it, but many of them don't. Many of them say, no, I'm sorry, I cannot be involved in this. I, I will not shoot these people. And they just walk off. Um, and, you know, in the testimony, again, they're 18,000 pages. They talk about this. They're like, yeah, I saw what they were doing and I wasn't going to have anything to do with it. So I walked away. Now, maybe they are lying. I don't know. But uh, it, it 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 clearly would have strained the the. The, the conscience of, of these people to be killing civilians. They knew they weren't supposed to be killing civilians. This is not a debatable point. They knew that. Uh, so some of them do, some of them don't, but enough of them do that some number of civilians were killed in, in these groups. And then they take the village completely. They burn it. Uh, they, they round up the remaining civilians and send them on their way. Now, what, what again, what Callie says is that he shot them because they couldn't be left in the rear. And he has a certain military sense to this. Like, imagine you really do think they are VC sympathizers. And in fact, they have an arms cache underneath their house or something. You're not just going to leave them there, right? And proceed, you know, north to your next objective. Something has to be done. And you can't take them with you. So what do you do? Well, you, you don't shoot them. But that's no, what Callie did. I was wondering yeah. what standard procedure would be. Presumably you would blow up the, the guns and you'd tie them up or something. I don't know. Yeah, well, there were no guns found. Well, I don't know if there were any guns found. I don't really recall. But there was a, it, they didn't find any arm caches in Milai or anything oh. like that. I, I don't know what they would have done. And this is why it's so mysterious, because I think standard procedure in that case would have been to leave them in the village and just move on. Um, but Callie says that he felt and Medina felt that they could not be left in the rear because they pose a danger to the troops who were going north. That's what he says. Uh, what happened, I don't know. A lot of people have some strange theories about why Callie did what he did, one of which was is that he was that uh, he felt Medina kind of bullied him and he wanted to show Medina that he was a tough guy. I, I don't this is not true. I can tell you this is not true. Uh, Medina bullied all of his platoon commanders, all of them. And they say this, he, he didn't treat Callie any different than anybody else. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a theory. It's just not a plausible theory, given what we know about the way Medina handled his platoon commanders. Um, and we also know that other platoon commanders did not do this. Uh, he had two other platoon commanders. They did not kill civilians. Well, their soldiers in one case did kill some civilians. Um, and there were some rapes that occurred in a village which is kind of next to Milai, where they felt the VC might be. They they went to that village, it's called Bente, and there were several uh, rapes committed there, which were stopped immediately. Once the commander of that platoon found out, a guy named Michaels, he stopped it immediately. I mean, clearly that's not on. Um, and Milai, no rapes at Milai? No, no rapes that we know at Milai. 
but at Binte, definitely. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't occur. No, no, no. But not, none. And, and the men and their testimony were remarkably forthcoming about this. Uh, that they 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 were very willing to say, yeah, he did it. He did it. He did. It. He was known to do it. You know, they could they could identify good actors and bad actors within the platoon and within the company. They would say, like, yeah, this guy was crazy. He 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 definitely you know he he was out to kill Vietnamese, and this guy was a rapist. I mean, we we had their names. We know who they were. Uh, they were not shy about pointing the fingers at their peers and saying, "Yeah, this guy was a bad actor," and and he, you know, he did it. Then within a couple of hours, they're clear of the village. Okay, so they've left the village. Left these. I mean, they didn't kill everyone in the village of Milai, did they? No. What was the population of Milai? Uh, well, that's a hotly contested topic. I don't know. Several hundred, I would say. So the figure of 500 killed at Milai, I know that's a figure that's bandied around. It's very difficult to know if that's right or not. That sounds like that's more than the population. I don't know. I really, you know, I, and in a certain way... But they don't I, carry out census uh, to, to no, establish... No, not... No, no. And remember, this is this is North Vietnam. Well, it's Vietnam. It's Vietcong-controlled area. So we don't know. And... This is obviously very valuable propaganda for the North Vietnamese, which they use. I and you know I, I'm sort of two minds about this debates over this figure. First of all, it doesn't matter. One is too many. They just should not have been doing that. They should not have killed these people, whether they were VC sympathizers or not. And then I would say that we just don't know. I mean, we know what the North Vietnamese said. Uh, we we know what the U.S. Army said. But it, in you know, to me, it's just—I guess it's an interesting question in ways. But it, you know, again, one is it's not many. the point. Yeah, 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 it's not the point. Yeah, okay. it was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so you mentioned. I, mean, no, the... I, I was going to say we kind of know it was a lot because there were photographs that were taken. Um, the army had attached a photographer to the unit because they thought they were going to have a great victory, and so we see uh, groups of bodies, and, and it's it's a lot. Okay, so you mentioned that the cover-up begins immediately, and we've already heard a little bit of that as well. And it yeah, goes- and it, pre- it proceeds a lot. It proceeds along the you know again, they're covering things up along the way. They're issuing reports, which they they go to what's called the talk. Uh, they they issue these reports saying you know we killed this many people, we captured this many weapons, we did this, we're moving here. Um, and interestingly, there's also a recording of what went on in the talk. Tactical Operation Command, I think it's, it's called. I, I don't really remember. But there's a recording. Somebody decided to record it because it's a big day for them. And so we actually have a recording of these reports being phoned in. And we have a recording of all the radio traffic, which is a great source. Um, and what it basically shows is that very early on, within 15 and you, so you minutes, get to. So, sorry to interrupt you there, Marshall, but you, you're listening to these. These are in archives, and you're. I didn't get to listen to them, but I got transcripts of them because the Pierce Commission had them all transcribed. But yeah, I mean, what, what, and what you see is, is that everybody knew within about fifteen or twenty minutes that there was something deeply wrong with this, and at that point, they were all trying to cover their asses. And how high and so, up? Uh, well, it probably goes to a guy named Oren Henderson, who was in charge of the um, 11th Brigade. Uh, he he was in the air at the time. Uh, so you have Oren Henderson. He was the new commander of the 11th Brigade. Then you have Lieutenant Colonel Frank Barker. He knew. Medina knew. Callie knew. 
all of the soldiers who were involved knew. But it's the higher-ups that, that issue the reports. And so they start issuing these reports back to the talk and back to battalion saying, oh, yeah, we killed this many VC and so on and so forth. So at this point, they're just engaged in a cover-up. And this happens like dur during the event. So you mentioned, uh, I think it's Colonel Henderson. Yeah. Who, who he seems to be the most, is he the most senior commander who He's the most senior in knows, the area. knows no, what's there's happened? A, there's a guy down. above him named Coster. And eventually, but within a few hours, the word goes from Medina to Barker to Henderson to Coster. Coster is the head of the Americal Division which is the big unit in the area. And Coster gets reports. And this is, this is kind of well known because a guy named Hugh Thompson, he saw it happen. He was a helicopter pilot. And he, he famously sort of threw the red flag and said, look, there are civilians being shot down here. And he even saved some of them. And so it goes from this air unit, which is a helicopter unit, to Barker, then to Henderson, then to Coster. Coster gets wind of it within a few hours that, that something has gone wrong at Milai. And I don't deal with this in the book because this is really part of the cover-up. Uh, yeah. What happens is, um, if I recall correctly, Henderson says, just on the basis of the suspicions which have been raised, we need to go back to that village to see what happened. Now, remember, they have other objectives. Medina doesn't want to do this. Barker doesn't want to do this. We need to go back to this village. And so Henderson says, and he's the new commander. He didn't design this operation. It was his predecessor, a guy named Lipscomb. But he's like, something is wrong here. We need to go back to that village and get a good count and see what actually is going on because it doesn't look kosher to me. And then, remarkably, as they're about to be ordered to turn around and go in, this is in the afternoon, Coster who's the head of the Americal Division, says, don't do it. Don't go back to that village. And there's been a lot of speculation as to whether Coster was trying to cover something up or something, but it doesn't look like that's the case. Coster said, we don't want to go back to that village, first of all, because we have other objectives. We need to find the 48th VC. And second of all, we don't know what's back there. Uh, it, you know, for, for all we know, it's laden with booby traps and mines and everything else. And, and just in terms of force protection, we do not want to go back to that village. So proceed so that so henderson's order is countermanded and that was just luck for for the the later conspirators that is the, the people that actually covered it up barker and medina i mean just blind luck that the coster did this um and, and for reasons which had to do with you know military exigency not with wanting to I, I think with wanting to cover anything up he's just like look no we are not going backwards we're going forwards our next objective is this go there so if we deal with the why it happened, and I know we've talked about it to a certain, well, to, to a great extent, you know, you've given sort of tactically on the ground the reasons of why it happened. Those reasons being there were bad actors on the ground and incompetence. Was yeah, I think that I, I think the simplest explanation for why this happened, again, you could probably name it's a little bit like the French Revolution. Why did the French Revolution happen? You know, a hundred reasons, and you could probably give a hundred reasons. But the most forceful explanation in my mind is that these troops were badly led. And they were badly led by Barker. He is the person most at fault for this. He believed things which were at best dubious, and at least in one case, no civilians there, absolutely preposterous. 
and he ordered his men to go in and kill everyone and destroy everything. Now, it's interesting to note that they didn't exactly do that. He told them to, but they, they didn't do it. They got there, they saw that the VC wasn't there, and they didn't destroy and kill everything. They killed some civilians, or as they would say, VC sympathizers. They killed some of them in groups, which is incomprehensible. They destroyed the village, which they were told to do, but they didn't kill everybody. But it's really Barker and the way that he framed the operation itself as an attack on a VC, heavily fortified VC fortress. That primed the men. They really expected a stand-up fight where they might be killed. They were very concerned about this, obviously. And so, you know, they they saw what they wanted to see. Or they saw what they had told to, you know, what they were told to expect. Uh, Callie, the Le- Lieutenant Callie, I think is the only soldier to have been convicted for the um, for the crimes. That is correct. Medina was charged and acquitted, and Callie was found guilty of the murder of I think twenty three Vietnamese civilians. And Barker um, died before it even right, came Barker out. died. Barker died a little over a year in a helicopter accident in country. Yeah, so we, we don't really know. We couldn't questioning him and, and, but you know uh henderson and coster and everybody else involved was questioned in detail you know and there's also a failure of oversight because we know that this particular operation was not approved by uh lipscomb or henderson or coster they didn't know anything about it and you know in a way that's not a bad thing you want your commanders to have a certain amount of you know uh license in the field like they they know the situation and that, that's good but ordinarily in an operation of this size, a battalion level operation, it would have to go up the chain of command. It, it did not. Like it, this was entirely Barker's doing. It's soup to nuts. It was his deal. So Marshall, a lot of people listening would have watched the movies, maybe delved into it a little bit more, read some books. It was recently had a very good Ken Burns documentary came out in, in a few years ago. And that would have, and certainly I'm, I may be just speaking for me, but I think many people may agree is that by 68, March 68, March the 16th, 1968, the war was not going well. And that many of the troops in the, in the, um, in the United States army knew that the war wasn't going well. And generally, and I know we've talked about the morale aspect of it, but generally all these factors would have sort of built up uh, in soldiers to to have almost and they de- would have dehumanized their enemy and the civilians particularly if they're if they're sympathetic to the Viet Cong so those factors surely should be taken into account when we try and apportion blame well, I mean I think they should but if you know this is something that I point out in the book if all those factors were very powerful then you'd see lots of me lies but we don't there's only one incident like this that I have found in the record because these factors obtained everywhere in South Vietnam. So if they were the causal element, then there would be 20 milis or 30 or 40, but there weren't, it was one. Uh, now I don't have any doubt that these things mattered. You know, it's also interesting to know if they, like, if you ask the, the, the people that question the soldiers, ask them what they thought about the Vietnamese and they just generally said they liked them. <laughs> I don't know what, you know, maybe they were just covering their asses, but yeah, they were very harsh on what they called VC sympathizers, but they said they generally liked the Vietnamese, that they were fine people. 
Um, so uh, again, I, I, I think in order to understand what happened here, you really have to focus on Barker, Barker's ambition. He really wanted to show his superiors that he was worthy of a promotion and a real battalion. And to do that, he had to destroy the 48th VC. So he saw what he wanted to see. And what he wanted to see was the VC without any civilians in a fortified village that he could destroy. So I, I guess I'm, you know, in, in my account, it's more about particulars than generalities. So the Milai massacre, what's the legacy of that today? In the in the U.S. Army, I mean, I know you know we've seen. You know, I I don't know. I mean, I, I could say this: we still fight wars of counterinsurgency in almost exactly the same way. We build fire bases. Uh, we send troops out of those fire bases to try to find the counterinsurgents. We try to kill them and make fine distinctions between combatants and non-combatants, and we try to convince the population that we're there to help them. You know, we did this in Iraq. We did it in Afghanistan. We're doing it today in Syria. I don't see how this can work. <laughs> I mean, I just this is more editorial than anything else. Me not speaking as a historian anymore, but hey, sure. If you invade somebody's country, they're not going to want you there. And yeah, they may not be communists or jihadists or whatever, but they're not. They're going to be like, "Who are you? Why are you here? What? What? You know, you're here to help me, but you killed my uncle. You know, I I just don't. It, it, it and you know, this is why in the book. I talk about the Vietnam War as a war of occupation, not a war of counterinsurgency. Because what we did was we occupied South Vietnam. We didn't really control it. We occupied it. And we said we were there to search for counterinsurgents, but we had pissed the entire population off, or at least a very good portion of them. And I think you see this again and again, whenever a, you know, a big state tries to take control of a smaller state or nation invades and then the locals are not happy about you being there um they they may like their neighbors they may not like their neighbors but they don't like you because you're there with a gun and you killed their uncle and so it's a very tough go um you know i i, I really you know, and I learned that it's actually interesting how I kind of came to frame this as a war of occupation versus a counterinsurgency operation is that there's a remarkable book called Soldaten. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. But what, what happened was, is the British captured all these Germans during the war and they put them in camps and then they recorded their conversations. <laughs> and so there are zillions of hours of these German soldiers who were posted to France and Poland and Czechoslovakia and these other places you know, talking about what they did. And, you know, for all the world, it sounds like Vietnam. You're like, yeah, the people around here hate us. And, you know, I, it's just, it's, it's really hard to go anywhere. It's, it's, you know, like I'm safe in my base, but I can't, you know, if I leave, it's dangerous. And, you know, it's, it's just like people hate us. And, um, you know, it's, it's very rough to be here. And and I was like, you know, I, I, one, one hesitates to make comparisons between, you know, Americans and Nazi Germans, but the situation is kind of the same. You're in somebody else's country and you're trying to convince them that you're there for their own good, but you killed their uncle. And it just is a, it's a tough go. It's really interesting you saying that, particularly since just a few weeks ago on the podcast, um, we had General 
Petraeus join to talk about counterinsurgency. And obviously he's had, one could argue, success in Iraq and Afghanistan, but it ended in ultimate failure because you can have a sort of, I guess, successful counterinsurgency. But as you say, if you're an occupying power, the overall sentiment of the people is they want you out. And eventually you're going to leave. Yeah. I mean, that's where they end. Yeah, they're they gonna know leave. you're going to leave. Yeah. They know you're going to leave. And, and uh, you know, the Vietnamese just went on about this forever. Like, we know you're going to go. We just don't know when. But you're going to go. And they kind of want you to go. Um, and and that's the way these things have ended, at least for the United States. I can't speak, you know, the Malaysian experience, I don't know much about it. But in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, now in Syria, we're going to leave. Well, I think Malaya yes. and Borneo were quite successful, but they're very different um, different examples. And there, I could list many British failures in foreign yeah, war. Yeah, I don't know. Or you might think about the you know the French war in Algeria. Yeah, of course. Yes, they had, they had to leave. I mean, they yeah. could, you know they couldn't stay. And um, and with French in Vietnam as well, of course. Well, right, the French in Vietnam. I mean, it, it's just you know, you know, kind of one of the general and interesting rules of modern military history is you cannot occupy a country in the long term. You cannot do it. The locals will want you out and nationalism is strong enough. And if they're armed, they will get you out. You will get tired of it and you will go home. Um, and that's what happened in Vietnam twice. <laughs> the French. Yeah. And with yeah. us. I guess the um, only one I can think of is you could uh, occupy Germany in the, uh, in the wake of the first, second world war. But then I suppose the German civilians, yeah, but that's a, you know, it's a kind of a different case in the yeah. sense that we had to absolutely, you know, in Germany and Japan, we had to destroy those countries. We bombed their cities into rubble. And, it, it, you know, it's just a very different thing. I mean, I'm sure you could argue, well, no half measures, we should we should have bombed South Vietnam into rubble, and we could have done that, but no modern power is going to do that. It's just, we're, we're just on humanitarian grounds. We're not going to do it. We're going to go in and we're going to say we're fighting a very clever war of counterinsurgency. Look how clever we are. <laughs> we're going to we're going to find the bad guys. We're going to kill them, and then everything's going to be hunky dory. Well, that just has never worked, as far as I can tell. Um, because the bad guys are, in, from your perspective, almost everybody, because they don't want you there. They want you to go home. And, and, you know, that was the case in Vietnam, where they make this very interesting distinction between VC and VC sympathizers. All the soldiers talk about it, you know. They have nothing against the Vietnamese. They, they really don't. They just want to go home. I mean, that's another important thing to, to, to bear in mind, is that for the soldiers, they just want to go home. They want to serve their one year or one year, two month, their Marines. Uh, stint and go home. Officers want to make rank. Like they want to go find these people and kill them because that's how they get promoted. So, you know, you're kind of set up to it's, you know, it's a it's a dangerous situation. And you know, for the grunts in the field, they're not going to make fine distinctions. Uh, this is a matter of survival. They're just not going to make them. Um, they're going to be told to make them right and left, but when push comes to shove, they're not going to be terribly interested in it. Because they want to go home. Yeah. Marshall, this has been fantastic. So the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, and is actually the reason why we're speaking, I think, is is through your new books network, which uh, which you set up. You were telling me before we started recording as way back as 2007. Yeah, 2007. Yeah, I can talk. We've, we've already, I've, I've taken up too much of your time already. No, no. I'm talking I, I, on these things. And I, is it okay? It's fine. Through? Yeah, absolutely fine. So yeah, the New Books Network, I started it in 2007. 
And the idea was, uh, this is kind of at the beginning of podcasting, the idea was to see whether people were interested in listening to professors talk about their books. That was all. And I thought this would be a good thing because one of the problems all academics will tell you is, is that we write these books and I've written them myself and then crickets, <laughs> just nothing happens. <laughs> They're not interviewed. There's a review that comes out two years later in an obscure journal and that's it. You're done. Uh, well, it seems to me there's a lot of lost value here because these people actually know a lot. So I started to interview them in 2007, back when I was a professor and uh, to see if people would listen and they did. And I was quite gratified by that. And it turns out it wasn't terribly difficult to do. So I, I originally, the New Books Network was just New Books in History, one channel. And then essentially what happened is word got out that I was doing this and other academics contacted me and they said, well, why isn't there New Books in Anthropology? Why isn't there New Books in South Asian Studies? Why is, you know, and I said to them, um, great, uh, I'll set it up. You do, you pick the books and do the interviews and I'll do all the audio editing and I'll publish them and we'll see what happens. And then we just started to launch new channels, one after another. And in uh, over 10 years ago, now I quit my job as a professor to do it full time, which, you know, I don't know whether that was a good idea or not. Uh, and then, as I like to say, I wandered in the desert like a biblical prophet because there was no money in it. I was funding it entirely myself. Um, but we built a really big audience and we started to produce a lot of interviews and eventually you know, we found a way to make the organization pay for itself. Um, and now we sort of think of ourselves as a library. If you go to the New Books Network website, you'll see uh, 24,000 episodes. So it, it pretty much everything you want is there. Like it, 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 you'll find something that you're interested in. Um, and it's a little bit Wikipedia-like in the sense that it, it, it caters to almost every interest. We don't differentiate between obscure topics and non-obscure topics. We just do all topics because from the point of view of the people who, you know, write, you know, these, what we might think of as obscure, but they're not obscure. <laughs> they're important. Um, and so, you know, we publish 70 new interviews a week and we have about a thousand hosts. They're almost all professors. Uh, and they do this work because they're interested in talking to their colleagues about their books. And, uh, you know, we're a very small organization. There are just three of us. Um, and, you know, we're a public education organization. That's what we do. Our, our mission is public education and nothing else. Uh, and so, you know, I hope people will visit and anybody's interested in becoming a host. You know, if you're a professor or a graduate student, we'd love to have you. Um, it's easy and fun. You get some free books. Uh, well, we reach, I, should, I should also say we reach about, a, you know, we do about 1.5 million downloads. And we reach about a million people a month um, worldwide. Uh, and so, you know, it's it's been gratifying to do this, I have to say. That's pretty amazing. Are you who's in, who's going to interview you about this book? I don't know. I, I don't know. Exactly. You can pick the best. <laughs> you can pick the best interviewer. The one yeah, you I, know. I could. Yeah, I haven't really thought about that yet. <laughs> well, I hope I've, you know uh, what I do all day is edit audio for people, other people. And that's why I don't really thought about it very much. But, uh, you know, it took me a very long time to write this book over 10 years. because I did it in little bitty pieces because I was running the new books network full time. Um, so it was a, it's, it's gratifying to see it in print. I don't know who's going to interview me. I have to figure that out. <laughs> well, well, there are links in the, uh, in the show notes for listeners to follow up on. And I, you know, I echo what you were saying. I mean, it's, it's just, you can get lost in there. There's so much to cover. 
That's what we want. You know, that's what we want. We, we, you know, it's a public education project and we want people to listen to what these people, and you know, the other thing about the New Books Network is a little bit different than Wikipedia is that we always give you someplace else to go. If you listen to the author talk about the book and you're really interested, you can read the book. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's exactly what I'm trying to get listeners to do here as well. So yeah, uh, I think I would encourage, I mean, this, the Vietnam War, I find endlessly fascinating. And what I find even more fascinating is that the My Lai massacre is not really being explored as much as perhaps it could have been, but now we have your book. So that's well, an important Thank you very step. much. Yeah. I hope that people, uh, it's not really the kind of book you enjoy. <laughs> yeah. It's grim, grim, re- grim reading. Yeah, it's grim so. reading. Yeah. It's grim reading. Uh, well, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much, Marshall. Absolutely. My, well, your, your organization very kindly contacted me, Richard and Kim own. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah. They must have been running low on guests because they <laughs> spoke to me. So. <laughs> um, they're always interested in people doing interesting things. So that's how I met. That's how I met Richard, actually. Richard Lucas says that he was like, look at this crazy thing you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's fantastic. And the fact that you, you've been going for a while and also, you know, before iPhones even existed, I suppose. When I first started to do this, I would use Skype to call people's cell phones to interview them. <laughs> and then how did how did listeners, would they play them on the website? Uh, no, they played them. Uh, Apple deserves a lot of credit for kind of creating the podcast. They had the first podcast app. And so the people at the Apple corporations did a lot of credit for creating the podcast market. And so originally there was just... Apple and there was a company called Stitcher. Stitcher recently went out of business, but uh, they were great early app. And so then it became easier and easier to get. Then Spotify got in the game and so on and so forth. And then there are lots of podcast apps. Yeah. Yeah. Great stuff, Marshall. It's been fantastic. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks very much. Thank you very much for listening. I've put links discussed in the show notes, including a breakdown of massacres in Vietnam for context, as Marshall and I discussed as well as a link to Marshall's book and the New Books Network, and more info on that Ken Burns documentary, The Vietnam War. Plenty more great history to come, but until then, thank you, and good night. (laughs) 